This week on the Back Table podcast. The queue of patients was always out of the door. I was always running late. People were always inconvenienced by having to come into my clinic. And I thought that contemporary technology was at a point where we could automate a significant amount of that activity, specifically the clinical activity that clinical professionals were doing, the low value activity. And that would free up people to do more complex things with their time, provide greater convenience for patients and and it would reduce the cost to healthcare services as a whole. Welcome to Backtable Innovation. You can find all our previous episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and at backtable.com. This is the next instalment of Backtable Innovation, where we learn from physicians and entrepreneurs working hard to drive healthcare forward. My name's Diana, and I'll be your host this week. I'm a physician and biomedical engineer in London, joining Backtable to bring more European voices to the show. On today's episode, we'll be welcoming Nick to Pennington, a neurosurgeon, CEO, and founder of Euphonia. The team at Euphonia have developed a telemedicine solution that's able to follow up patients after uncomplicated surgery. I'm very excited to learn more about this elegant example of artificial intelligence in action. So Nick, great to have you on the show. Why don't we start and you just introduce ourselves to our listeners? I'm Nick Pennington. I'm the founder of this company, Euphonia, but from a clinical standpoint, I was a surgeon, I was a neurosurgeon working in the NHS for the best part of a decade. So I I did all my training around the kind of Oxford area before transitioning across into into the world of of digital health. So tell us a bit more about Euphonia. What are you guys building? Well, as you say, we're we're building a platform to automate routine bits of clinical care. So I sat in clinic, like I guess many of the people listening to this podcast and thought that a huge amount of what I was doing and, and what my colleagues across all sorts of specialities and, and disciplines were doing was really routine activity. Yet the queue of patients was always out of the door. I was always running late. People were always inconvenienced by having to come into my clinic. And I thought that contemporary technology was at a point where we could automate a significant amount of that activity, specifically the clinical activity that clinical professionals were doing, the low value activity. And that would free up people to do more complex things with their time, provide greater convenience for patients, and, and it would reduce the cost to healthcare services as a whole, which, you know, given the current economic conditions, is, is vital everywhere across the world. So what can Euphonia do? Just so our listeners understand, what kind of patients can it follow up? I know it's hard work running a clinic, but I guess there's some parts you can automate and some parts you can't. And I'd love to hear, you know, your experience of how you move that forward. Yes, I mean, we started with the most common operation in the world, which is cataract surgery. It's an area that causes significant operational pressures to all healthcare systems. And specifically, we started with the follow-up after cataract surgery. So the surgery, as most people will know, is pretty straightforward, very safe, and patients have a generally really great outcome. But it's worth checking to make sure that they they haven't got any complications or any other issues that need to be resolved afterwards. And so depending on the health system you're in, people are seen one, two, three, or even more times after surgery in, in some countries. And these are really routine consultations. And so what we do is rather than a patient coming and being seen, or even nowadays having a telemedicine visit, our system, which is called Dora, telephones people, has a conversation with them and is able to recommend the next steps in their care, which could be to be discharged and to go and see an optician and get a new pair of glasses, or it could be to come back and have another operation on their other eye, or it could be to come back 
because they mention something that we think needs a human clinician to look into more detail. And how does it work? Is this like, does Dora have a conversation with the patient? What does it feel like from a patient perspective? Yeah, exactly. I think the thing to remember, which we sometimes forget, I think, as clinicians, is that a consultation is a bi-directional thing. There's a lot of digital health tools that are providing one side of that experience. So, so some tools collect information from patients for the benefit of hospitals or clinicians. And some tools allow patients to contribute information and to share information or to ask questions of their healthcare providers. But what we're doing is combining the two things together into a bi-directional conversation. So the start of the conversation involves asking the patients things to make sure to take essentially a, a small mini history from the patient. And then it transitions to allowing the patient to ask questions and then bringing all of that together, we're able to offer them some guidance on the next steps in their care. But we also capture other information on the call, such as their experience. And we also capture information about feedback they want to give to the hospital team. Because as I say, cataract surgery and, and lots of these elective surgeries that we're, where we're starting, but, you know, people are absolutely delighted having had that. And, and we want to be able to feed that information back to, to clinicians on the front line. It's a tough enough job, but we want to be able to let people know that their patients are really grateful, even if they're not seeing them themselves. No, that's great. I imagine that not running clinics might affect some clinicians in that way. They don't get that feedback. So you said they feel like a conversation. So the patient sort of has a conversation with, a, with Dora. How long does this last? Is it like a five-minute conversation? Is it very patient-led? Like when you listen to the recordings, how do people interact with Dora? Most of the conversations are about the five to 10 minute length. And that, that's kind of optimal for us at the moment. It, you know, it's, it's a signifier that these are relatively straightforward conversations. But the really interesting thing is we haven't got a limit. So it doesn't matter how long the patient wants to speak to Dora. Our system can, can speak to the patient for as long as they need to. In contrast, I guess, to, you know, what we typically and colleagues will face in clinic where, you know, you're on, you're on the clock in terms of trying to move through all the people that are booked in. So that's, I think, one of the real key benefits. And the first thing that we did and the first study that actually just got published a few weeks ago was all about patient acceptability. Mm. And I think the really interesting thing about the cataract patient cohort that we're looking at, their average age is 76, just the natural history of the disease. Typically, those wouldn't be people that you might say are early adopters of AI technology. You know, slightly generalizing, but you know, as a whole. But yet, what we see, you know, incredibly high net promoter scores, averages of nine out of 10 across the sites that we're deployed in, because we're providing that kind of convenience of the system. Dora calls them when they're told Dora call will happen. Dora can speak to them as long as they need to. There's no rush. And even the calls can be done at different times of the day or different days of the week in a way that human staff, you know, just don't have the capacity to offer. Uh, so one of the things that I find really impressive about Euphonia is that you know, you're delivering this AI technology directly to a patient's telephone, right? Yep. I think that's what makes it so easy for, you know, someone that's 76 to adopt the technology. They don't need to interact with anything. They don't need to, you know, go through some complex API to access a chatbot and get frustrated by it. It's just a phone call. Nothing changes. Um, it actually just makes things a lot easier for them. Tell me a bit more about how the technology works. What's behind the technology at Euphonia? Essentially, exactly as you say, in front of the curtain for the patient, there's no technology. Mm. And I think that's the really important thing to emphasize that the patient just has a telephone call on whatever line. Behind the curtain, there's lots of different things happening at the same time to try and orchestrate essentially a, a real-time live telephone call with an automated agent. So to kind of summarize, 
of course, we have to connect into the hospital record systems to get some information. We then need to deliver calls out across the telephony network. We take audio across that call, which is usually relatively poor quality, and need to transcribe that into text. We take that text, put it into our conversation engine that essentially decides what's the next best thing to say to the patient. We generate that live, turn it into audio, feed it back down the phone, and the patient hears it. So all of that's happening in real time to try and deliver a natural conversational experience. So this is sort of an example of natural language processing, right? Taking audio, moving it to text, and then your algorithms will then pick out the keywords in text to form an appropriate response. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're trying to understand from whatever the patient says the intent, and those intents then will trigger different utterances from the system, depending on what we can understand from, from the patient. As you can imagine, part of the complexity of this as well is doing it in a regulated way where there's a degree of explainability about the natural language processing that's going on. How have you guys gone about that? I know that explainability in AI is a big, big topic. Probably could talk about that for an hour, but in the context of euphonia, I guess it's for a very specific application. So maybe, maybe it's a bit different. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think it's a general concept, right? You know, we're a bit different from um, the sort of image detection type AI, but you know, explainability in our context is, I think, a combination of clinical safety and the underlying conversational architecture that we develop. And so we go about developing conversations. So as Cataract was the first use case, but we're now building that out into, into all sorts of other similar high volume care pathways. And we go about that with the kind of the standard evidence-based method that you'd expect for, for any kind of healthcare solution. So we do a literature review. We source information about what is the content of a clinical conversation. We think it's discriminatory in terms of whether someone's well or unwell effectively, or has a particular symptom or doesn't. We then kind of build that with some key opinion leading advisors. And then really importantly, we go and test it with people, with real members of the public and see how they respond to the conversation and see what they say. And, and then use that to train the system, to understand people better, to reach a point where we have confidence that what the patients are saying is something that the system understands correctly and reliably and reproducibly. And then we'll move people through the pathway in the way that we think is safe. And how was it, like you said that, you know, you go through this whole process to find the parameters of someone who's well, someone who's unwell. But I imagine like there's a lot of nuances in the way that people say, I have eye pain. They might say that in 25 different ways where only one is relevant. Would you follow up sort of anyone that says they've got eye pain? What we're doing is we're, we're sort of doing medical school 101, taking a history from a patient. Okay. At a high level, that's the fundamental concept of, of our system is, you know, everyone, we're all taught on you know, week one of medical school that, that taking a history is 80% of the, the process, right? And then, you know, you, the examination kind of confirms your history and then the investigations kind of confirm your examination. But the history and speaking to the patient is the course. And, and so that's our premise is that speaking to patients, we can gain the majority of the information that we're going to need from them. Mm. Um, but you're absolutely right. People say things in different ways. I think there's two elements to, to how we solve that. So one is, is the underlying base level of natural language processing kind of research, and that continues to progress. And so we use some underlying large language models that have been well developed and described to kind of understand the core things that people say, that the fact that yes and yeah and uh-huh all kind of mean basically the same thing. 
Yeah. But then we kind of put a layer on top of that that's that's healthcare specific and that's domain specific mm. to the area that we're talking about. So, you know, in, in cataract surgery, there are things called flashes and floaters, you know, in terms of uh, symptoms that people get. Now, that's not something that kind of features heavily in, in the, the standard language models that are, that are trained on, you know, the whole of the internet. So we've got to then finesse uh, that input to try and make sure that the system understands they're a particular class of symptom that we care about and that we want to pick up with high reliability. So that's that process of kind of moving it through training before we we put it in front of people uh, live. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine the the more sort of niche you get into a a particular, the more... The more specific, domain specific. The more domain specific you get, the, the more difficult it is to quantify or categorize what the what the patient's feeling. And the reason I ask about pain is because, you know, in my experience, you know, I've worked in East London a lot and people don't use the word pain to describe them being in pain. They'll go for like burning, they'll go for tingling before they'll they'll admit that it's pain. And I just wondered if maybe you'd had a similar experience with the nuance of of that word. Yeah, for sure. You know, I give a kind of a a simple example, but it's if you ask someone, which is one of the, the core things is, you know, is your eye red? Well, People can describe that in a whole heap of different ways, right? Rather than what you're describing as a as a clinician looking at, at the eye. So that's, as you say, exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to tease out. The other thing, you mentioned East London, but the other thing that's kind of super interesting about the system is um, is the ability to cope with people with different cultural experiences, mm. which is a, somewhat about how they would express themselves in English, but also in different languages. So yeah. we've got some really exciting work where we're collaborating with um, some international sites. So team over in Holland and the Netherlands and uh, a team in, in Hong Kong. And we're able to deliver the system in multiple languages, but we're just going through the process of trying to validate that in the same way that we have done in, in English in, in the UK before that starts getting used by, uh, by patients in those countries and, and elsewhere. And I can see that being of massive value, especially in areas where you know, you've got a really broad demographic and doing a clinic with a translator is no easy task, as I'm sure many of our, our listeners understand. So bringing it back to the clinic setting. So you mentioned you know, you've got Dora. So, so yeah, I'm an ophthalmologist. I've done 100 cataract surgeries that were uncomplicated and Dora has called them back. How, what kind of proportion can I expect Dora to discharge versus Dora to sort of send back to me? At the moment, we're, I guess we're kind of version one of the system, which is a pretty high bar for us considering the patient to be safe. And so even with that, we're able to discharge 60 to 65% of people pretty consistently across every setting. Wow. Which from an NHS clinician standpoint, you know, the NHS at the moment is trying to reduce routine outpatient points by 25%. So we at a stroke are able to identify more than double that number of patients who could be discharged and therefore freeing up capacity to see people who you need more complex care. 60% is huge, right? If my if before I had to do clinics five days a week, now I only have to do clinics three days a week. Dream. And that's exactly what's happening. Those doctors or those those nurses or those optometrists are free to, to see people with glaucoma where they need to see them and they need to measure the pressure in, in the eye. It's really powerful. And as I say, this is version one. We're really cautious about, you know, so anyone who has any issue, who has any, any questions that we can't answer, we don't have high enough confidence in what we've heard or the system's heard, mm. all of those people are in that 40% or so who, um, who get a second line human review. Yeah, and it has to be that way, right? Because otherwise you, you need to get buy-in from patients, but also from clinicians. How has that process been? How has it been getting buy-in from clinicians? I imagine very easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly that. I think you know, people from the outside of medicine say, oh, you're never going to convince clinicians that an automated system, a robot, in inverted commas, can deliver a care. 
And actually, I think you couldn't be further from the truth. Most clinicians realize that a significant amount of what they're doing is pretty routine stuff. It's activity that's kind of burnout inducing activity, mm. right? It's repetitive. It's really stereotyped. One of our biggest problems, which is a great problem to have, is, is every clinician we speak to has a use case in their specialty where they're doing something that's high volume and repetitive. And so, you know, m- my biggest challenge most days is, is saying no nicely to, to people or saying not yet, because, you know, we, we want to make sure that we consolidate the first use cases we've got and make sure that they're really excellent experiences before we, we spread out too thin to do, to do too many different things. And it's so important, especially in healthcare innovation, if you lack that focus and you try and spread yourself too thin across too many applications, then you won't hit any of them. Yeah. What's next, just out of curiosity, is it? What's the next most compelling use case for Dora? Well, I mean, the, the UK and the NHS have done some really great work. There's a, there's a team called GERFT, uh, Getting It Right First Time team, who've, 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 who've really sort of led the way in kind of standardizing pathways. And, and in particular, they have a high volume, low complexity pathway group. So we're really following in the wake of, of that activity. And so essentially what we, what we care about doing is moving the needle for healthcare systems. And so we care about things that are high volume that are causing pressure on the systems and making patients wait for longer. And the things that we're building now, we're building for orthopedics for, for hip and knee replacement yeah. surgery, we're doing some work in ENT, head and neck cancer triage pathways. A huge number of people coming through through those pathways. The overwhelming majority, 95% plus, who don't have cancer, but yet are still struggling to be seen in a timely fashion. But we're also uh, doing some work in women's health, so gynecology, the hysteroscopy pathways. They're just the tip of the iceberg. You know, anything where people are having high volume conversations, that's the sort of activity that we're, we're trying to automate. And what has your experience been? Because I guess like with the cataract surgery is a lot about patient follow-up. But I imagine the conversation becomes increasingly complex when you're trying to triage someone, especially on something like a two-week wait pathway. And for the benefit of our American colleagues, a two-week wait pathway is an emergency sort of care pathway where you're seen within two weeks when there's a possibility of a diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. The challenge is more at this stage because, again, it's pretty standardized. And actually, when we, and the work we did in uh, head and neck cancer is, is with a team uh, at St. George's in southwest London. And nationally, a group of EMT surgeons were very progressive in terms of trying to establish a standardized way of triaging people, a standardized questionnaire. And this was introduced by their trainee collaborative during the first phases of COVID as a way of trying to optimize the way of seeing people who came through a two-week wait pathway. So it is a bit more complicated. The greater complication is actually the operational delivery. So I think we have to, we're always very mindful of the fact, and, and I think I skipped over maybe at the start, my career journey sort of spanned from delivering full-time clinical care to then delivering some digital programs from within the NHS. Mm. And what I recognized in doing that was if you ask people to implement a digital solution and you ask them to change their pathway to accommodate the digital solution, those two things don't go well together. And generally, they mean that the digital solution doesn't, doesn't work or takes a long time to implement and people are pretty annoyed. Well, the technology becomes outdated before, before you, you get to hit go. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 can, never, it can never deliver what, what people want. You're always kind of forcing people to change and, and, and compromise. The key about what we do is you say, look, we're just going to deliver a like for like for your current pathway. But what that means is we have to work really hard from an operational standpoint to make sure that we, we just sit into that pathway without people having to change and, and do things to, to meet what we want. We meet what the clinical teams 
one. So the complexity of, of, of that two-week wait work is all about trying to sit into a pathway that already exists rather than make the pathway change to, to yeah. fit us. And that makes a lot of sense that that's the only way you're going to reach the patients and it's the only way you're going to be able to validate that it works. The, the pathway service change can come later. So, you know, you mentioned the beginning of your career a bit and I'd love to get to know sort of your story a little bit better. So you mentioned earlier, you did your training in the NHS, you kind of completed your training. Is that right? Yeah. So I went through the full residency program. And uh, what happened afterwards? You, you, I know that you do a lot of work in sort of health data structuring and digital health solution. Well, the, I guess, working on the infrastructure behind digital health. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of, as with everything, sometimes on the, these kind of interviews, right? You, everything's kind of rose tinted. Yeah. And, and it always is a bit rose tinted, like the kind of story. I have to say, you know, for all those clinicians thinking about how do they merge kind of digital or technology and entrepreneurship and, and clinical practice. Like this was a very organic journey. So like I didn't, like the only thing I had planned is that I knew I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, right? I went through and into a neurosurgery training program straight out of my basic surgery training. And I was convinced that that was what, that was what I wanted to do. And it was super interesting. Like I had hopefully delivered some, some value to society, was able to care for a, for a bunch of people who were really sick, was able to do some very interesting kind of operations. But fundamentally, I kind of realized that it was pretty unscalable. Um, that if I wanted to have impact on, on sort of wider society, doing one eight hour operation a week was probably not going to be the way, way to do it, although it would help that one person, hopefully. So I got really interested in value-based healthcare. I went on Michael Porter's course at Harvard Business School mm. and got excited by the potential of, of using technology through some of the case studies there to affect scalable change. And so to cut a slightly long story short, ended up building some digital solutions from within the NHS in a hospital in Oxford. Found that really hard to do. So along with a couple of uh, great colleagues, we set up an innovation program within the hospital to try and make it a little bit easier for other people coming after us. And, and that's thankfully been adopted by the, the hospital trust there as their, their formal innovation program run by a great team now. And when I got to the end of my, my residency, my registrar training, I essentially transitioned across and started working from the management side of the hospital kind of trying to support and run those innovation programs and, and got given some responsibilities to try and run some other digital programs that, as you mentioned, involved rolling out integration of data population health solutions. Did that for, for a short while, but the realism of how difficult it was to do things from the inside that were innovative, you know, dawned on me pretty quickly. And I thought if I want to really do this, I've got to do it from the outside. So you said that, you know, you finished your residency training, you went into this data management. And how was that transition towards Euphonia? Where did that idea come from and start? I actually won a hackathon competition. Oh, wow. With the original idea from Euphonia, which is, which is basically not very different from, from, from what we've kind of implemented. And that gave a, a small kind of grant, £25,000, I think, to build the initial prototype of the system or a prototype. And so built, built that concept that we could autonomously call people and have, have, a, have a conversation with them in a bit of a, a Wizard of Oz system. So it was, you know, the front end seemed like that, but behind the scenes, we were doing a lot of manual stuff. Frantically, everyone was searching, searching for words. Yeah, literally, literally that. There was someone sitting, listening into the calls, like clicking on, uh, on buttons to, to kind of classify what the, they thought the person would said, and that would spit out something different to the patient. But it, it was a way, you know, I think it's a kind of classic now way of, of trying to do technology 
software development, right? Is, you know, create an MVP, get it in front of users really early on. So we had a great GP up in in Liverpool, like right in the, the very earliest days who, who said, oh yeah, like I need this for all my patients. I want to call all my patients on my entire list every year and find out if they're okay. Because at the moment I don't see, you know, 70% of them from year, one year to the next. So he was like, yeah, this is brilliant. Look, here's my patient, you know, access group. Let's put it in front of them. Let's ask them if they'd like to, to try this out. So we just got the broad principle in front of some, some real patients from literally day one and got some feedback from them about like what they thought about it. The AI bit of it wasn't like working behind the scenes, yeah. but the kind of concept and the experience, you know, was there. And, and, you know, I still remember like the first call that we did to a person and it, we we're all lit, sitting in this room, listening in on the call and we could hear, you know, and, and it works. And it was, you know, it's one of those kind of like light bulb moments where like, aha, you know, this definitely is going to work. People get it and they were able to interact with it in a really, um, really engaged way. So yeah, that was um, really powerful. And that's a better way to do it, right? Then you know you're really addressing like a true unmet need before you try and reinvent the wheel. That must have been pretty, pretty amazing. And who, who gave you the best kind of feedback? Was it the younger patients, the older patients? No, we deliberately did this testing with some old patients because we knew that, I mean, it's a truism, right, for healthcare, but the biggest users of healthcare everywhere in the world are old and I have to say poor people. Yeah. Right. But, you know, predominantly like health deteriorates with age. So biggest demand users of healthcare are more elderly people. So we always have you know, designed for that demographic predominantly, you know, the system worked with anyone, but we, we always know that like our target group of going to be people who are generally going to be 60 plus for most diseases that are, that are being cared for in whatever health system in the world. No, I really like that. It sounds like you guys have always had a very principled approach and that's really hard to achieve, right? People get excited about tech. People get excited about the latest development, the newest software available, but they don't really contextualize it in a cl real clinical problem, which just sounds like you guys have done from the beginning. Yeah, well, I think that's what like the, the massive advantage of, of clinicians, you know, having, having clinicians involved in any kind of technology project is, is because you intuitively are able to, well, understand the need, understand we're trained to have a degree of understanding and empathy with our users, our patients, right? And so yeah. you really can, can kind of bring that to bear. And I thought, I, again, I trained in, in hospitals that were affiliated to, to big universities and saw, like universities are amazing. They do, they do great research work, right? But generally what I saw a lot of was hammers in search of nails, right? You know, so people had lots of brilliant like innovations, then trying to find a practical problem that they were going to solve. And I think, you know, if you come from within the system, you know what the problems are and you just have to try and work out how to, how to solve them. Yeah, most importantly, I think clinicians are really good at just stating the problems in simple words, right? They don't need to add flowery language to it. Like quite often the hardest things are just, I need the medication at 8 a.m. versus I need a very complicated medication. Yeah, although although it's it's I think it's what has only become apparent to me sort of with the opportunity, and I think see it as that to step back away from it, healthcare. And and it's what I tell everybody on our team when they join the team, like you'll become immune to all of the things we're doing wrong, like after about a week. And the clinicians, I think, you know, you become immune to all of the, like when I look back, I think, you know, why the hell did I spend five years like practicing like this? This is so inefficient. This is so bad for the patients, but it's the norm. So it is like really important for, to have kind of confidence of your, of your convictions. But, and, and I think periodically to sort of step away to see the perspective, because especially when you're kind of in training, you know, your head, you're, you're so head down trying to do things, trying to progress, trying to learn new skills, 
that it's sometimes the case that you don't you don't have or you know very few people and i wouldn't i wouldn't put myself in it <laughs> like i had to kind of step out to really see it but like you know very few people see these opportunities because you're just this is just how we do things around here becomes the the attitude too easily yeah it's very hard to separate the noise from from what's important and what what inspired you to take that step away was there anything in particular you know a, a mix of things i kind of describe it i think as a, a bit of carrot and a bit of a bit of stick you know as i say I enjoyed the operating of neurosurgery, but I realized that to be a really amazing, what I liked about neurosurgery was like, it's tremendously varied. Mm. You know, I, I, I operated on everyone from preterm babies to hundred year olds on people who are about to die, you know, in the middle of the night to people who are really well. And it was just a very lifestyle. I really enjoyed having that breadth and spectrum of activity, but I knew if I wanted to be a really good clinician, I needed to just get really narrow and do high volumes of pretty much the same thing. And I just so and it's not really what excited me about. Yeah. And I think a lot of our listeners can relate. Some p- people enjoy that, but we're all different. And sometimes it's, it's more about taking the innovative approach and understanding, taking an outside view to the hospital. Well, I, th- I think it's also about kind of wrecking, you know, and it, took, and it took me a while, right? So I went all the way through this training. And so it's like, you know, a lot of people looked at me kind of pretty strangely at the end, having sunk all of that cost, if you like it into um, what your life is some cost into neurosurgery but you know recognizing what what motivates you as an individual and it's really hard again in clinical careers where there's a pretty prescribed track that you're on so yeah the, the, the more perspective you can get on it the better better i think but yeah I th- so I, I just thought you know this is is good but like there is there's more to have direct clinical care yeah, and look, what you guys are doing at Euphonia is affecting lots of patients. More patients will be able to have cataract surgery and, to your point, on other patient pathways, you'll reach thousands at, at one time. Yeah. And at the same time, free up those clinicians that do love doing the procedures to do more of what they want to do and get better at it. So you affect both sides of the pathway. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that in the last year, we've, we've cared for, in our own way, more patients than I'd probably care for in my entire career if I'd stayed in neurosurgery. How did you go about finding the other skills for like, so we talked a lot about the clinical skills and like defining the, the unmet need and taking that forward to an MVP. But how did you get away from, you know, the Wizard of Oz curtain? How did you find the engineers and the people who were able to build the technology and help with the business development side of things? I think that's something that a lot of physicians really struggle with. Where do you look for those, that talent? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky. I, I was always sort of somewhat technical. So I, I kind of, had enough technical digital knowledge to be a little bit dangerous, you know. I'd done that from before medical school and through medical school and I ran like this project internally while I was still a trainee that managed to build a kind of platform for managing referrals from within the hospital. And so I kind of had enough knowledge about the technology just to, to know the right questions to ask rather than maybe to to build it all, all myself. But as I say I was I was very lucky when I got that initial grant, we went to a, an agency, a digital agency to build this proof of concept. And the guy that, that ran that project is now our chief product officer, James. And he built that initial version of it. And then when I got some further funding and money and, and I went to him and said, you know, do you know anyone who's got your skill set who'd be quite interested in this project? He thankfully said, yeah, me. <laughs> and so, yeah, he came on board and that was the start of the team. But there's no easy path huh, to find, the, find those right people. No, you definitely, definitely need like people who have the skills. I think, you know, I've seen, I've seen some people, you know, outsource it. I think that can work. And we sort of did that at the start just to get going. 
but you pretty quickly, like if you want to be a product focused company, then I think you need to kind of bring that in house. And, and I, I mean, nowadays I'm seeing like a lot of clinicians. You don't have to be just in the lane of clinical practice, you know, like people on our team who are clinicians and are, you know, really good at, at coding. One of our teams like built some robotic process automation wow. from scratch, like literally written the Python code for it to do work that you know, people in who are doing that across the IHS aren't even able to do. So you can be multidisciplinary, but but one of the key things I've then said is like you you've got to like focus on what your what your peak skills are. Don't try and just average out and be averagely good at lots of things. Don't be an averagely good clinician, averagely good kind of business manager and a, an averagely good coder. Like really choose something to focus on and and get get really, really, really good at something because that's where the value I think comes. No, that makes a lot of sense. And what, what advice would you give to clinicians that have an idea, they've put it on a piece of paper in five words, like where where should they start? How can they go from zero to one? Assuming you want to be an entrepreneur, I think there's a few assumptions to try and work through. Do you want to be an entrepreneur do you, or do you want to be a clinician? Yeah. So there's like this binary thing, like if you want to be a clinician, then you probably need to find someone who's going to take that idea on. If you're interested in being an entrepreneur, which I highly recommend, it's really exciting. It's like does fulfill all the, you know, all the tick boxes for an interesting thing to do with your life. Then the most useful piece of advice that I got was through an accelerator program we were involved with from a, a professor of entrepreneurship, which sounds a bit of an oxymoron. But anyhow, <laughs> the, the, this, this guy's- It does. Yeah. This guy's advice was, you know, the single necessary condition for a startup company is a paying customer. So I, I would like- strongly recommend you find out who is going to pay for the thing that you've built. And that could be that like a charity is going to pay for it, right? It could be that it's going to be paid for out of voluntary donations of people's time, right? That's not that's still plausible, but generally that's going to be someone has got to put their hand in their pocket and give you cash for the thing that you're going to provide. And the second most useful piece of advice I got was from one of our, our investors. When we were kind of evaluating the system and we were testing it, and he basically just said, like, get out there and sell this thing because sales is product discovery. If people are buying it and paying for it, you know you've got a solution that's right. And the more people that are doing it, the more right you are in terms of that you're building something that people want. And the converse is like, if people are not paying for it, you're not building something that's valuable to people. Therefore, you should try and work out what is. So I, I would really focus on that because you can get a bit caught up in the idea, mm. but it sounds really great. It's going to be kind of transformative. That will turn to nothing unless you work out that it's valuable to people and our economy, that generally means that people are going to pay for it. I like that. Two very practical steps to take. I'd love to know, how can people get in touch with you if they, if they want to reach out, learn more about Euphonia, um, get involved in some projects you're doing? What's the best way to reach you? They can email me. They can LinkedIn connect with me, send me a message. I'll respond. But yeah, always keen to kind of talk to a lot of our good clinical areas have come from clinicians coming and saying like this is this is where we've got a need and I like I don't I know neurosurgery and I vaguely know some of these other things but I don't know I'm not an expert in any particular specialty so we really want people who are going to say actually this is a massive high volume pathway where we're doing the same thing day in day out and then and the next generation of what we do is at the moment we're doing reactive care but the next generation is to start to do proactive care so although at the moment it's kind of predominantly um, hospital-led elective surgery work the next generation is to think about how do we, we manage people's wellness at home um, through automated calls to them. So yeah, lots, lots of opportunities for people who have insights into that area come along and we'd be delighted to talk about it and potentially work together. That's great. And what about any recommendations of any books to read or 
anywhere where we can learn a little bit more about whether it be natural language processing or, you know, the principles of entrepreneurship that you've t- touched upon a lot? Yeah. The, I mean, the principles, I don't think there's anything better than, than getting there and doing it. It's really hard. You can read as much as you like and like, yeah, everyone can read all of the, all of the kind of the classic books about, you know, Lean Startup and everything else. But ultimately, and again, it was with something I was pushed to do by one of these programs is like, you know, you've just got to kind of pull, pull the ripcord and have a go. The amazing thing about being a clinician is you've got this amazing safety net. Like there's never a shortage of jobs for you to go back into. And I think increasingly the skills that you get like are going to be massively in demand anyway. So, so I don't think anyone should think that this is like a, a detrimental career move to, to do, to do it. So, so yeah, I think the most important thing would be to get involved. We kind of run within the company something that's kind of pretty classic and we very recognizable to clinicians. You know, we run a journal club mm. series. We run learning sessions within the company and and I get all of my insights from from my colleagues. My, my kind of answer to your question is meet other people outside of medicine, you know, who, who can give you those insights and who can say, actually, look, this is an amazing paper that's been published or here's, you know, someone who's really uh, sharing interesting blog posts or, you know, this is a company that's in an exciting space. So, the only way I think to do that is to, you can't do it on your own. You have to basically do that either with a team that you bring together or, you know, if you're, if you're starting out, really network, but try and force yourself to network outside of the common circles of, of the usual clinicians. Be curious, take risk and uh, hang out with other curious people. It's very important. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And there's no such, there's no better learning than experiential learning. Yeah, definitely. Just just got to do it, and then you find out, right? <laughs> okay, we'll go one way, one way or the other, and you'll you'll learn a lot either way, right? So, um, yeah. so just do it. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Back Table. It was fascinating to hear more about Euphonia and learn about this elegant solution of artificial intelligence in action. I hope our listeners found that useful, and we look forward to seeing where you're going. No worries. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson. Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Anne Dang. Social media and PR by Chi Dang. And Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.